I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. How are you today? I'm doing well. Um, I'm doing okay. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to downgrade to, to okay. It's been a tired day all day. How about you? Kind of similar. Not to tell everyone too much about my day job, but I am a reading teacher and I just finished reading Where the Red Fern Grows, since that'll be a part of the summer reading curriculum. And so I'm emotionally vulnerable right now. But I think it's a good place to be as we dive into another emotionally chaotic play. Oh, that's a good way of phrasing it. Yeah. Chaotic is true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chaotic. Chaotic. Well, everyone can tell by the title that we are discussing Titus Andronicus as our next play, a really hard left turn from A Midsummer Night's Dream in terms of content. And so we really want to start off this series with a content warning Today and throughout our time discussing Titus in future episodes, um, we are going to be discussing plot points and themes in Titus that may not be suitable for all listeners. This play specifically involves acts of mutilation and acts of torture, as well as a rape and sexual assault that are discussed multiple times and graphically throughout the play. There's also some overt racism 
and non-consensual cannibalism in this play. For our part, we are focusing on just the facts of the play and not trying to sensationalize what happens in it, but we realize that that might not be suitable for all listeners, so please listen with care. Thank you, Elise, for that great content warning. It's funny because people think of Shakespeare and they think of Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, they think of Midsummer, And then when people find out that Titus Andronicus exists, and then they find out what happens in Titus Andronicus, they're like, what? Shakespeare wrote what? Yes. And yeah. And it's very bloody play. Very, very bloody play. And I love the play. This is one of your favorite plays. I, I don't know if it's one of my favorites, but I do enjoy it because it's kind of like the Saw movie yes. version. Like it's the Saw movie equivalent of a Shakespeare play. And I'm just a big fan. I think that it's exciting, but also it is very difficult to encounter sometimes. Like when I was doing when I was doing some of the writing in this play, I was getting upset. And you know, it, it just is difficult. But it is, it is also a very exciting play. There are a lot of really interesting things to talk about when it comes to the human condition, relationships, family, revenge, you know, those things will get into our stuff to chew on. Yeah. But it is one that I actually really am a fan of, even if it is a difficult play. This is maybe the closest play we'll get to having a true crime podcast with some of the things that we'll have to discuss. So yes, we're going to branch. <laughs> with that said, shall we dive in? Let's. The play begins with the flourish and the entry of tribunes, including Marcus Andronicus and senators upstage. We have started our first Roman play and want to clarify some of the Roman words throughout. So our first one, tribune. A tribune was a Roman official representing plebeians, or the Roman common people. Senators, on the other hand, represented aristocrats. Downstage, Saturninus and his followers enter at one door, Bassianus and his followers enter at another door with drums and colors. Saturninus speaks to the senators and his followers to ask that they defend his hereditary right to rule Rome in battle. Saturninus is the firstborn son of the last emperor of Rome and claims he will be insulted if his claim to the title is questioned. His brother, Bassianus, on the other hand, appeals to the whole of Rome and bases his claim to the title on the Roman virtues, thus calling for a vote one free of primogeniture. To this, Marcus, above with the crown, asks the two princes to recognize that tribunes have already chosen Titus Andronicus as emperor. We learn that Titus is regarded as a nobleman and a braver warrior. He is returning home victorious after a ten-year war against the Goths. During this time, Titus has only returned to Rome five times in order to bury his sons who died in battle. Marcus asks that the two brothers dismiss their followers and plead their virtues humbly. Both Saturninus and Bassianus are calmed. Bassianus and Saturninus dismiss their followers and soldiers. Both brothers accept the outcome and commit themselves to Rome. Saturninus demands the gates be opened and the two go up to the Senate house. Then a captain enters and announces Titus's arrival and his impressive victory against the Goths in the name of Rome. The sound of drums and trumpets play. A line of characters enter. First, two of Titus's sons. Then, two men carrying coffins covered in black. Then, two more of Titus's sons. Then, Titus Andronicus himself. Then, Tamara, the queen of the Goths. Then, her three sons, Alerbus, 
Chiron, and Demetrius, with Aaron the Moor, and finally, others. The coffin is set down. Titus begins a speech addressed to Rome. He hails Rome as victorious, even as it simultaneously mourns. Wearing laurel boughs, Titus has tears in his eyes as he prepares for the upcoming ceremony. Titus then presents those who have returned, both dead and alive. The dead Romans will be buried with their ancestors. They open the tomb, and Titus mourns and honors his sons lost in battle while simultaneously mourning the continued loss of his many sons. To this, Lucius demands they sacrifice the proudest of the Goths in response, and Titus gives Lucius the queen of the Goths' eldest son. Tamara, queen of the Goths, kneels and begs Titus to recognize a mother's tears of grief for her son. If Titus's sons were dear to him, he should think about how her son is dear to her. She understands that they have been brought in as captives to Rome, but asks if her son should be slaughtered for defending their country, like they, the Romans, fought for theirs. Tamara implores Titus to, like gods, be merciful and spare her son. Titus is not moved and stands by his decision to sacrifice a Goth in exchange for the death of a Roman. Upon hearing this decision, Lucius orders Tamara's eldest son away. Titus's sons and Tamara's eldest son, Alarbus, exit. Tamara rises and cries out. Her younger sons, Chiron and Demetrius, note the barbarity and presumptuousness of Rome. Demetrius states that, while Alarbus goes to his death, the rest remain to fear Titus. Demetrius also hopes that the gods provide Tamara with the opportunity for revenge against her foes, unspoken, but clearly, Titus. After this, Titus's sons re-enter and gloat about the sacrifice of Alarbus, which they describe as a Roman rite. Now, they close the coffins, and Titus officially lays his sons to rest. Lavinia enters and greets her father with praise. She then kneels at the tomb and presents funeral rites to her brothers. She sheds tears of joy for their return to Rome and asks to be blessed by their hands, the hands that Rome applauds. Titus recognizes Rome, for it has invigorated his heart. Then he asks Lavinia to outlive him and outlive fame for virtue's praise. Marcus enters and greets his brother with praise. Marcus then turns to greet his living nephews who have returned from a successful war who will receive fame and fortune. He then turns to the tomb and honors his nephews who have died in war, who have the ultimate happiness in death. Fun fact, the ancient philosopher and lawgiver Solon wrote that one might not be truly happy until one is dead. So, that's the philosophy these characters have in mind while burying the dead. Now, back to the play. Marcus then addresses his brother. Marcus reiterates the good deeds Titus has done for Rome, and then gets to the point. He has been sent to bring Titus the palliament, or a candidate's gown, as well as to name Titus as a candidate for emperor. Marcus concludes by asking Titus to put on the robe and become the head for a currently headless Rome. Titus counters this nomination by pointing out that Rome would be better off with a younger ruler, not an older man like him. Titus accuses himself of troubling Rome if he accepted this nomination and began a new life as a ruler. Titus is, after all, a veteran soldier of 40 years. He would rather accept a staff to honor his age, but not a scepter. Marcus says Titus can acquire that if he asks the empire. Saturninus then asks Titus if Titus could tell who he thinks should be the emperor. 
Titus requests patience from Saturninus. Saturninus then calls for support for his claim to the throne. Saturninus says he would rather Titus be sent to hell than rob him of the people's hearts. Lucius calms him and assumes that, because Titus is dedicated to old values, he'll probably favor primogeniture, therefore supporting Saturninus. Titus demands Saturninus yield, for Titus will restore the people's love for Saturninus because Saturninus is not popular amongst the people. Bassianus speaks up and declares he honors Titus and will do so until he dies. Bassianus states that if Titus strengthens relations between Bassianus's followers and Titus's friends, he will be ever thankful, and to honorable men, that is reward enough. To both of the brothers' claims, Titus turns to the people of Rome and the people's tribunes and calls for a vote. Titus asks if they will accept whomever Titus chooses to be emperor. The tribunes respond that they will. At this, Titus advises Rome to elect as their next emperor, drumroll please, the late emperor's eldest son, Saturninus. Titus hopes that Saturninus will bring a golden age to Rome and declares, if all elect Titus's advice, they should crown Saturninus. Marcus acknowledges the shout of approval from both patricians and plebeians alike, and leads all in crowning Saturninus with a long live our emperor Saturnine. There is a long flourish, and as the crowd settles, Saturninus speaks. Saturninus, now emperor, thanks Titus as a part payment of the reward he deserves. As a beginning gesture, Saturninus tells Titus that he will make Lavinia, Titus's daughter, his empress. Saturninus asks Titus if he likes that proposal. Titus agrees that this proposal does please him, and this match has honored Titus himself. In response, Titus sanctifies his sword, his chariot, likely a figurative one, and his prisoners. Cool Titus. All as presents for the emperor Saturninus. Saturninus thanks Titus, his future father-in-law, and says he is proud of Titus and Titus's gifts. Saturninus states that the day that he forgets Titus's deeds is the day that Romans can forget their fidelity to him. Titus turns to Tamara and asks if she is a prisoner to an emperor who will treat her and her followers nobly. Saturninus says, in maybe or maybe not an aside, that Tamara is a goodly lady who looks like the kind he would choose if he chose another woman. Saturninus then turns to Tamara and tells her to cheer up. Even though war has made Tamara upset, she has not been brought here to be made an object of disdain. She will be treated nobly. Saturninus gives his word and asks that her dissatisfaction will not conquer her dreams and guarantees that she can become greater than the Queen of the Goths. Saturninus asks Lavinia if she is not displeased by this, and Lavinia responds she is not displeased, since true nobility guarantees these promises. Saturninus then dismisses everyone with the announcement that, incapable of being ransomed, Rome shall set its prisoners free. Saturninus proclaims Rome honorable and requests celebration. There is the sound of drums and trumpets, and Tamara, Chiron, Demetrius, and Aaron are all released. In the midst of this movement, Bassianus seizes Lavinia and tells Titus that Lavinia is his. Titus asks Bassianus if he is being truthful. Bassianus affirms that he is, and that he is determined to do what is expected for Lavinia. Marcus responds that, to each his own, is the Roman justice, and the prince Bassianus has seized Lavinia as his own. 
Titus's son Lucius joins in support of Bassianus's claim to Lavinia. Titus calls Bassianus and Lucius traitors and searches for the emperor's guards. Titus then calls to Saturninus to inform him that Lavinia has been captured. Saturninus hasn't noticed and asks, by whom? Bassianus makes the claim that he is the one who has the right to marry Lavinia and, for some reason, take her away from the world. Mucius, Titus's other son, orders his brothers to help take Lavinia away and promises that he'll guard their escape. Bassianus, Marcus, and Titus's other two or three sons lead Lavinia out the door. They exit. Titus orders Saturninus to follow, and he, Titus, says he'll bring Lavinia back. Saturninus does not follow. Instead, he exits out another door with Tamara, her two sons, and Aaron. Mucius tells his father that he will not pass. Titus, unhappy with Mucius's defiance, kills his son in response. Mucius calls Lucius for help. Lucius re-enters and scolds Titus for killing his own son. Titus disowns Mucius and Lucius and demands the traitor give Lavinia back to the emperor. Lucius says he can offer Lavinia to Saturninus dead, but not as his wife, for Lavinia is already lawfully promised to another. Lucius exits. Saturninus re-enters with Tamara, her two sons, and Aaron. Saturninus responds to Titus that he does not need Lavinia, nor Titus, nor any of Titus's children, because he will not trust anyone who, like Titus and Titus's sons, mocks and dishonors him. Saturninus. Saturninus then accuses Titus of having said that Saturninus had to beg Titus to become the emperor of Rome. Titus does not believe the accusation being hurled at him, Saturninus then insults Lavinia's fickleness and permits Titus to give Lavinia to Bassianus, for he, Bassianus, is low enough to fit in with the Andronicuses. This statement hurts Titus so badly he calls them razors. Next, Saturninus announces that he wants Tamara, queen of the Goths and finer looking than anyone in Rome, to be his bride and empress of Rome. Saturninus asks Tamara if she likes the idea. Before she answers, Saturninus also swears by the gods that, ready for marriage, he will not re-salute or enter his palace until he enters with his bride. Tamara responds by announcing that she accepts the proposal. Saturninus invites lords to accompany him and his bride in the pantheon to consummate their spousal rites. Everyone except Titus exits. Alone on stage, Titus states, perhaps perplexed, that he was not invited to join everyone. Now remember, Mucius's dead body is still on stage, so technically Titus isn't alone. He then asks himself why he has been dishonored and wrongly accused of charges. Marcus and Titus's three remaining sons enter. Marcus scolds Titus for killing Mucius in an argument. Titus rejects this and calls his entire family, Marcus, his brother included, unworthy. Lucius wants to bury Mucius with the rest of the Andronicus' sons. Titus also rejects this idea. Titus explains that the tomb is 500 years old and only soldiers and servants of Rome may be buried here. They may bury Mucius, just not in the tomb. Marcus and Titus's sons all reiterate that Mucius's and the remaining sons' deeds for Rome justify burying all of them in the tomb, even if Titus objects. Marcus and his sons kneel to plead for Mucius' pardon. 
Titus agrees that they can bury Mucius if they bury him next. All but Titus bury and honor Mucius. All but Titus and Marcus exit. Marcus changes the subject and asks why the Queen of the Goths, Tamara, has advanced her social status so much in Rome, or become the empress. Titus tells Marcus that he doesn't know, but if it is scheming, the heavens will reveal that. Titus then asks Marcus if Tamara is not indebted to the man who has advanced her status, or Saturninus. Marcus agrees she will pay him back. Just at that moment, Saturninus, Tamara, her sons, and Aaron enter at one door, while Bassianus, Lavinia, and the remainder of Titus's sons enter at the other door. Saturninus addresses Bassianus in a petty spat about each other's brides. Saturninus acknowledges Bassianus has his quote-unquote prize and compares the catching of Lavinia to the sales of livestock. Bassianus responds by sending the same regards to Saturninus and his bride and then saying he will take his leave. Saturninus then calls Bassianus a traitor and claims that if Rome has the law, Bassianus and his faction will pay for taking Lavinia away for Saturninus. Bassianus disagrees with this claim and states that Lavinia is his, rightfully. Saturninus does not like this response. Bassianus then defends Titus and states that even though Bassianus must deal with his choices, Titus is being wronged, for Titus killed his own son while trying to stop the rescue of Lavinia for Saturninus's benefit. Bassianus asks Saturninus to receive Titus favorably. Titus responds by telling Bassianus to not beg for him. It's Bassianus and that entire party who have dishonored him. Titus then kneels and swears love and honor to Saturninus. Tamara turns to Saturninus and asks to speak and be an impartial judge to the situation. Saturninus does not want to be openly dishonored without getting his revenge, but Tamara clarifies. She believes Titus is genuinely furious and grieving. Tamara suggests she doesn't break ties with Titus. Tamara then turns to Saturninus privately and recommends he listen to her because he is newly elected, for fear that the people and even the aristocrats of Rome might take favor with Titus and assume Saturninus to be ungracious. Saturninus should leave everything to Tamara. Tamara will massacre them all, father and children, and make them pay for her son's life. After this sinister aside, Tamara addresses the crowd and asks Saturninus and Titus to make up. Saturninus orders Titus to rise, for Tamara has convinced him. Titus rises and thanks Tamara. He feels rejuvenated by this resolution. Tamara tells Titus that she is happily now a Roman citizen and must advise the emperor, Saturninus, for his good. It is Tamara's honor that the quarrel has died. Tamara also offers to pardon Bassianus, Lavinia, and Titus's sons. Titus's sons, and possibly Bassianus and Lavinia, kneel. Lucia shares that what they did was for their sister Lavinia's honor. Marcus kneels and agrees. Saturninus sends everyone away, but Tamara asks that Saturninus be friends with the kneeling bunch. Saturninus tells Marcus that, for Marcus's sake, Titus, the tribunes, and Marcus's nephews will be pardoned. Even Lavinia, who ungraciously left Saturninus because he has found Tamara. And if the emperor's court can celebrate two brides, Lavinia and her friends shall be Saturninus's guests. Titus offers that he and Saturninus go on a hunt the next day, 
and Saturninus agrees and thanks Titus. Everyone except Aaron exit. Speaking for the first time now that he is alone on stage, Aaron celebrates Tamara's meteoric rise from prisoner of war to empress of Rome. He vows to be ready for his status to rise along with Tamara's because he and Tamara have been in a long-term romantic and sexual relationship. He envisions shedding his servant's clothing for pearls and gold and taking his place alongside Tamara. As for Tamara, Aaron predicts she will charm Saturninus and lead him to the ruin of Rome. Just then, Tamara's sons, Demetrius and Chiron, enter arguing over which one of them deserves Lavinia more. Chiron threatens Demetrius with his sword. Aaron, in an aside, calls for the watch to break up the brawl between the two brothers. Demetrius says that Chiron is a child who shouldn't have a real sword yet until he knows how to better handle it. Chiron says that, while he doesn't have much skill, he can still make Demetrius feel the sword. They draw, and Aaron steps in to remind them that they are near the Emperor's palace with drawn weapons, and in Elizabethan England, drawing weapons in public places was illegal. Aaron says he knows the reason for their quarrel, and he would not let Titus's family, aka the Andronici, know Chiron and Demetrius were fighting over Lavinia for a million gold. Moreover, if the subject of their quarrel was public knowledge, Tamara easily could be dishonored in court. He urges the brothers to put away their swords. The brothers resist, and Aaron insists that they put their swords away. He chastises them for their petty fighting that could undo everything Tamara is working to achieve. Rhetorically, Aaron asks the brothers if they have thought about how dangerous it would be to encroach upon Bassianus's right to Lavinia. Furthermore, Aaron notes, it isn't like Lavinia is so promiscuous and Bassianus such a terrible husband that a quarrel for Lavinia's love wouldn't be met with revenge. Aaron warns the brothers that if Tamara knew they were fighting over Lavinia, she would be enraged. The brothers remain unconvinced, with Chiron professing his love for Lavinia. Demetrius says that Lavinia is a woman and therefore can be wooed. Plus, notes Demetrius, once a woman is no longer a virgin, no one can tell how many men she slept with, and better men than Bassianus have been cuckolded. In an aside, Aaron agrees since he will be cuckolding Saturninus. Demetrius insists that he can get away with wooing Lavinia like a courtier, and it will be just as easy as poaching a deer. Demetrius, Chiron, and Aaron then engage in some wordplay, discussing sexual conquests through language related to hunting for sport. Aaron asks the brothers that if this is more about conquest than love, why are they fighting? Would either be offended if both succeeded in wooing Lavinia? The brothers agreed that they would be fine with that. Aaron then proposes that the brothers work together to be cunning and strategic in their pursuit. He notes that Lavinia is notoriously chaste, and the brothers cannot waste time being lovesick over her. Aaron says that he has a plan. There is a ceremonial hunt planned, and all Roman ladies will take part. The forest paths are wide and spacious, and there are many private areas where rape and villainy can take place. Aaron suggests that the brothers get Lavinia to one of those spots by wooing or by force. He says that this plan is their only hope to have sex with Lavinia. Aaron then says that they will let Tamara know their plan, and she will not only approve of the plan, but help them further refine it. He notes that if they try to woo in court, Demetrius's idea, they will be surrounded by gossip, but the woods will keep their secrets. 
In the woods, Aaron says, they can woo Lavinia or force themselves on her. The brothers agree to this plan, as their lust is unbearable. All three exit. Titus, Marcus, and Titus's three remaining sons enter. It is the morning of the hunt. Titus says that the hunting dogs will make such a loud noise that it could wake Saturninus and his bride, Tamara, along with the rest of the court. Titus instructs his sons to join him in paying close attention to the emperor and keep him safe, as Titus had some trouble sleeping the night before, even though he is feeling better this morning. Accompanied by the sounds of dogs barking and hunting horns, Saturninus, Tamara, Bassianus, Lavinia, Chiron, Demetrius, and other members of the court enter. Titus greets Saturninus and Tamara. Saturninus says that Titus has started the hunt a little too early for newly married ladies. He means Tamara and Lavinia. Bassianus asks Lavinia if she thinks it is too early for a hunt, and she says no, because she has already been awake for over two hours. Saturninus, Marcus, and Titus discuss final details of the hunt, while Demetrius says to Chiron in an aside that they will be hunting too, but not like the rest of the court. They are hunting Lavinia. All exit. Aaron enters alone in a more isolated part of the forest, where there is a hole in the ground, carrying a bag of gold. He explains that while it might look foolish to bury so much gold without planning to gather it in the future, it is a part of a bigger scheme, presumably something Aaron and Tamara have come up with offstage. He then hides the gold in the hole and tells it to rest there until it is time to have revenge upon those who have wronged Tamara. Tamara enters alone and asks why Aaron looks sad when everything around them is happy. She encourages Aaron to stay with her, make love, and fall asleep in the grove while everyone else is busy with the hunt. Aaron says that while Tamara might be horny, he is focused on vengeance against Bassianus. Aaron explains that this is the day that Chiron and Demetrius will rape Lavinia and cut out her tongue, so, like the tale of the nightingale, she cannot tell anyone what happened to her. This is also the day that Bassianus will die. Aaron gives Tamara a letter and tells her to give it to Saturninus and ask Aaron nothing more. He then sees Bassianus and Lavinia in the distance. Bassianus and Lavinia enter as Tamara professes her love for Aaron. Aaron tells her to stop since Bassianus is coming. Aaron tells Tamara to be angry with Bassianus, and Aaron will go get Demetrius and Chiron to back her up with whatever she chooses to accuse Bassianus of. Aaron exits. Bassianus questions why Tamara is alone and without her hunting party. Tamara asserts her rank. Bassianus is of a lower rank and therefore shouldn't be questioning her, and insults Bassianus, saying that if she had the power of the goddess Diana, she would transform Bassianus into a deer for intruding on her privacy. Lavinia begs Tamara's patience, but also suggests that Tamara may be suspected of cuckolding Saturninus by being alone with Aaron. Bassianus agrees and asks what other reason Tamara would have to leave her attendants and hunting party to be alone in a remote part of the woods with only Aaron, if not sexual desire. Lavinia suggests that the only reason Tamara is so upset with Bassianus is because he and Lavinia accidentally interrupted something. She suggests she and Bassianus leave and let Tamara and Aaron do whatever they were going to do. Bassianus says that he will tell Saturninus of Tamara's dalliance, and Lavinia agrees that this will disgrace Saturninus in a way he doesn't deserve. Tamara tells Bassianus and Lavinia 
that they can go ahead and tell Saturninus, just as Demetrius and Chiron enter. Demetrius asks Tamara why she looks so pale. Tamara accuses Bassianus and Lavinia of luring her to the secluded spot, showed her the hole in the ground, told her a scary story about the spot, and threatened to tie her up and leave her there to die. Tamara says that Bassianus and Lavinia also accused her of adultery, which is true, and called her terrible things. She says that if Chiron and Demetrius hadn't arrived when they did, Bassianus and Lavinia would have enacted their horrible plot. Tamara urges Chiron and Demetrius to seek revenge for her as if the plot has been executed. Demetrius and Chiron stab Bassianus, who dies. Tamara asks for the dagger that was used to stab Bassianus and turns to stab Lavinia. Demetrius stops Tamara. He says that the only thing that makes Lavinia think she is better than Tamara is Lavinia's chastity and asks if she deserves to die chaste. Chiron says that he would prefer to be a eunuch than have Lavinia die chaste, and he suggests dragging Bassianus's corpse to a secluded location and using it as a pillow while Chiron and Demetrius rape Lavinia. Tamara reminds Chiron and Demetrius to not let Lavinia live to tell what happened and what is about to happen. Chiron assures her that they will make sure that Lavinia will not be able to seek revenge. Lavinia tries to appeal to Tamara again, but Tamara cuts her off and tells her sons to take Lavinia away. Lavinia tries to ask Chiron and Demetrius to convince Tamara to hear her. Demetrius says to Tamara that Tamara should take pride in seeing Lavinia's tears, but should not let the tears sway Tamara's heart. Lavinia cries out that children should not instruct their mothers like that, even if their mother is the one who taught them such cruelty. With the hope that Chiron will be different than his brother, Lavinia turns to Chiron to ask him to entreat Tamara for pity on Lavinia's behalf. Chiron counters that doing that would show he was not Tamara's son. Lavinia tries once more to beg Tamara's mercy, or if not mercy, pity then. Tamara says she doesn't understand what Lavinia means and again orders Chiron and Demetrius to take Lavinia away. Lavinia continues to try to beg Tamara to intervene on her behalf. First, she tries to remind Tamara that Titus could have killed Tamara, but showed mercy, and for his sake, Tamara should show Lavinia kindness. Tamara says that even if Lavinia hadn't offended her, Tamara would not intervene on Titus's behalf because he did not show mercy or pity when Tamara begged him to spare Alerbus. Lavinia then begs Tamara to kill her instead of letting Chiron and Demetrius rape her. Tamara refuses, and Demetrius says Lavinia has wasted too much of their time already. Lavinia tries to protest again, however Chiron grabs her and covers her mouth. Chiron then instructs Demetrius to bring Bassianus's body to the hole that Aaron dug. Demetrius throws Bassianus's body into the pit, then Demetrius and Chiron exit, dragging Lavinia. Alone on stage, Tamara bids her sons farewell and says that she will not be happy again until all of the Andronici are dead. She says she will go find Aaron and let her lustful sons deflower Lavinia, who she calls a whore. She exits. Aaron enters with two of Titus's sons, Quintus and Martius. Aaron says that he will bring them to the pit where he saw a sleeping panther. This is a lie. Both sons comment on how bad their eyesight is. Martius says that he would rather be sleeping than hunting when he suddenly falls into the pit. Quintus comments on how difficult the pit was to see and asks if Martius was hurt when he fell, 
Marcius answers that his heart is hurt from the sight he discovered in the pit. Remember, Bastianus's body is in there. In an aside, Aaron reveals that he will go find Saturninus and bring him there. Saturninus, Aaron says, will see Martius and Quintus with Bastianus's body and assume that they killed Saturninus's brother. Aaron exits. Martius asks why Quintus doesn't comfort him and help him out of the pit. Quintus says he is afraid of what he will see if he looks into the pit. Martius says that Quintus and Aaron should look down and see what is there. Quintus tells Martius that Aaron has left, and Quintus refuses to look on his own. Quintus asks Martius to tell him who is there. Martius reveals that Bassianus's dead body is in the pit. Quintus asks how Martius knows it is Bassianus when it is so dark and difficult to see. Martius says that he recognized Bassianus by the ring Bassianus always wears, which is apparently glowing in the dark and illuminating the scene in the pit. Martius asks again for Quintus's help in getting out of the pit. Quintus reaches into the pit and offers Martius his hand, but then says that he doesn't have the strength to lift Martius up and lets go. Martius says he doesn't have the strength to climb without help. Quintus asks for Martius's hand again and says he will not let go until Martius is out of the pit or Quintus falls in too. Unable to pull Martius out, Quintus falls into the pit. Saturninus and Aaron enter, and Saturninus declares that he will inspect the hole that he just saw someone leap into. He calls down into the pit, and Martius answers that both he and Quintus are down there, and found Bassianus dead. Saturninus does not believe them because he just saw Bassianus and Lavinia in the lodge less than an hour ago. Martius responds that he doesn't know how it happened, but Bassianus is definitely dead. Tamara, Titus, and Lucius enter. Tamara asks where Saturninus is. It must be really dark. And he answers. She then asks where Bassianus is, and Saturninus answers that Bassianus has been murdered. Tamara produces a letter that she says shows this murder was premeditated. This is the letter that Aaron gave her earlier. Saturninus reads the letter, which mentions a reward near the elder tree that shades the mouth of the pit. Aaron produces the bag of gold that he hid earlier. Saturninus turns to Titus and accuses Martius and Quintus of Bassianus's murder. Saturninus orders Quintus and Martius to be brought to prison and held there until he decides how to torture them in revenge. Tamara exclaims that it is miraculous that they are both in the pit. Attendants pull Quintus, Martius, and Bassianus's body from the pit as Titus kneels to beg mercy from Saturninus and asks Saturninus to consider that his sons may be innocent and to not punish them until their fault is proved. Saturninus replies that it is proved and asks who found the letter. Tamara replies that Titus himself found it, even though the audience knows that Aaron gave it to Tamara, and Tamara saying that Titus found it was neither clearly part of the plot nor did the audience see it happen. Titus, for some unclear reason, confirms Tamara's version of events. Titus asks Saturninus if Quintus and Martius can be released to Titus's custody instead of being held in prison. Saturninus refuses and orders Titus to follow him while others accompany Bassianus's body and others accompany the murderers. Tamara promises Titus that she will entreat Saturninus on Titus's behalf. Titus stands and tells his son Lucius to come with him. Everyone exits. Demetrius and Chiron enter with Lavinia. Lavinia's hands have been cut off. 
her tongue has been cut out, and she has other visible evidence of her rape. Demetrius and Chiron taunt her for the mutilations they caused. Chiron and Demetrius exit, leaving Lavinia alone on stage. There is the sound of hunting horns, and Marcus enters. Lavinia starts to run away, but Marcus calls out to her. He asks where Bassianus is. Then Lavinia turns around to face him. Marcus is shocked by her appearance and the injuries to her hands. He asks her to speak and tell him who cut off her hands. She opens her mouth to reveal her missing tongue, and blood flows out of her mouth. Marcus realizes that she must have been raped and her tongue and hands mutilated so that she could not reveal who her rapist is. Marcus asks Lavinia if he can speak for her and say that this is what happened. Presumably, Lavinia nods, as Marcus laments that he cannot read Lavinia's mind and know the identity of her rapist in order to seek revenge. Marcus compares Lavinia to Philomela, the mythical woman who was raped and had her tongue cut out. He laments the loss of her hands, which could have been used to identify her rapist and with which she can no longer play the lute. He also laments the loss of her singing voice. Marcus convinces Lavinia to go with him to Titus, for the three will mourn together, even though their sadness cannot lessen Lavinia's misery. They exit. The tribunes, as judges, and the senators enter with Titus's sons Quintus and Martius bound. They cross the stage towards the place of execution. Titus enters pleading. Titus begs the tribunes to consider Titus's old age and all of his sacrifices for Rome, and to show pity for Titus's sons, whose souls are not corrupted like everyone thinks. Titus explains that he has lost 22 sons and did not weep for them because they died honorably. The tribunes ignore him. Titus declares he will write his pain for his sons with his tears and weep so much that his son's spilt blood will make the earth ashamed and blush. All exit but Titus. Titus then tells the earth that he will aid it with more rain from his eyes in order to constantly wash away his son's blood. Lucius enters with the weapon drawn. Titus pleads to the offstage tribunes to pardon his sons from this sentence. Lucius tells Titus that these laments are in vain because the tributes can't hear him. Titus pleads to Lucius. Lucius reiterates that no tribunes can hear him. Titus concedes that, even if they could hear him, he will still plead, even though it would be useless to beg. Instead, Titus will weep to the stones because, unlike the harder-than-stone tribunes, stones will not interrupt, and they will listen and weep. Finally, Titus asks why Lucius's sword is drawn. Lucius shares that he is here to free his brothers from their death sentence, and, due to this, the judges have pronounced his punishment, banishment. Titus tells Lucius that he should be happy that Rome has spared him with banishment. Titus compares Rome to the wilderness, full of tigers, and the tigers are preying on Titus and his family. Titus then notices Marcus and wonders who is with him. Marcus and Lavinia enter. Marcus warns Titus that he brings sad news that will break Titus's heart. Titus wishes to see what Marcus brings. Marcus presents Titus with his daughter. Titus agrees that it is his own daughter. Lucius falls to his knees and grieves that this spectacle kills him. Titus calls his son faint-hearted and demands him to stand. Lucius stands up. Titus continues and demands Lavinia tell them who made her handless. 
Titus thought his grief had reached its height, but now it is overflowing. Titus demands a sword so that he can chop off his own hands because their fight for Rome has been in vain. He also notes that it is well that Lavinia has her hands chopped off so that they can't serve Rome. That's a weird take, Titus. Lucius also asks Lavinia to tell them who chopped off her hands. Marcus informs the two that her tongue, which would have been able to share the secret, has also been torn out. To this, Lucius asks Marcus to tell them who did this to Lavinia. Marcus is unable to because he only found Lavinia in this condition. Titus laments that the person who did this to Lavinia has hurt him more for this act than if they had killed him directly. While Titus has experienced a lot of pain lately, he lists the recent Andronicae tragedies, Lavinia's fate is the worst. She has no hands, no tongue, her husband is dead, and her brothers, charged for the crime, must be dead by now. Titus notices that when he mentioned Lavinia's brothers, Lavinia started to cry. Marcus wonders if Lavinia cries for the death of her husband, or if it's because she knows her brothers are innocent. Titus states that if her brothers killed her husband, justice has been served. Titus then walks that back because Lavinia looks too sad about her brothers. Titus then suggests that all four of them sit by a fountain and mourn together, or chop off their hands, or cut their tongues out like Lavinia's. Titus concludes that they should make a plan. Lucius asks Titus to stop because this is clearly upsetting Lavinia. Marcus comforts Lavinia and gives Titus a handkerchief to wipe his tears. And Titus notes that Marcus's handkerchief is already too damp to use. As they all comfort each other, Titus realizes Lavinia cannot communicate with them, which is far from helpful. Aaron enters alone with a message from the emperor Saturninus. If Titus loves his sons, he should let Marcus, Lucius, or himself, Titus, chop off a hand and send it to the king as ransom for his son's faults. Titus agrees to this deal and asks Aaron to chop off his hand. Lucius rejects Titus's offer and offers up his own hand instead. Marcus then chimes in and says that, since both their hands have served Rome while his hands have been idle, Marcus should offer up his hand for a worthy cause. Aaron asks them to just decide on a hand in case the sons die before their pardon. Finally, Titus spares his own hand and leaves it up to Lucius and Marcus. Lucius says he'll fetch an axe, and Marcus says he'll use the axe. Lucius and Marcus exit. Titus asks Aaron to help him deceive Lucius and Marcus by chopping off Titus's own hand. In an aside, Aaron cannot believe Titus's definition of deceit, for Aaron reveals in this aside that his deceit against Titus will be revealed in half an hour. Aaron proceeds to cut off Titus's hand. Lucius and Marcus re-enter. Titus tells Marcus and Lucius to not be upset. Titus asks Aaron to bring his hand to the emperor, which, he says, was an easy exchange for his son's lives. Aaron agrees to go, and for Titus's hand, Titus will have his sons. In another aside, Aaron admits that instead, he will get Titus's son's heads. Aaron then relishes in his villainy. If a man is being honest, Aaron will be as black in soul as his face. Yikes, Shakespeare. Yikes. Aaron exits. Titus then lifts his hand to the heavens and kneels. Lavinia also kneels. 
Titus says that heaven will hear their prayers or their sighs will darken the skies. Marcus tells his brother to speak realistically and not get dramatic. Titus tells Marcus that because his sorrow has no bottom, neither do his passions. Marcus advises Titus to be guided by reason. Titus responds that if this misery had reason, he could control his woes. Just like during a storm, Lavinia is the sad skies and Titus is the earth. Titus responds to Lavinia. A messenger enters with two severed heads and a hand. Titus and Lavinia rise. The messenger delivers a message. Titus has been poorly repaid for the hand he sent the emperor, for he is now to receive his two sons' severed heads and his own hand. It turns out Titus's grief has been used as a sport and mocked. The messenger gives his condolences, sets down the body parts, and exits. Marcus is outraged. Lucius laments that this sight hurts so badly it makes life barely worth living. Lavinia kisses the two heads. Titus wonders when this bad dream will end. Marcus snaps Titus back to reality. This is not a dream. Marcus then lists the atrocities against the Andronici. Marcus declares that it is time to act. Titus laughs. Marcus scolds Titus for the inappropriate behavior. Titus says he responded in this manner because he has no more tears to cry. But Titus gathers everyone to vow to revenge. With their vow for revenge made, Titus sends everyone on their way. Marcus and Titus will each take a head, Lavinia will carry Titus's hand in her mouth, and Lucius will leave for he is in exile. While away, Lucius is to go to the Goths and raise an army. They embrace and part. Titus, Marcus, and Lavinia exit. Lucius remains. Alone on stage, Lucius says goodbye to his noble father. He says goodbye to Rome until his return. He says goodbye to Lavinia and hopes she will be as she was before. If Lucius lives, he says he will avenge Lavinia and make the Emperor Saturninus and Empress Tamara beg for their lives. Lucius exits to raise an army for revenge. We are now at a banquet. Titus, Marcus, Lavinia, and a boy named young Lucius after his father Lucius enter. Titus tells them all to sit at the table. So all sit. Titus tells Marcus to unfold his arms, which denotes grief. Titus then continues on and tells Marcus that both he, Titus, and Lavinia can't properly express their grief without their hands, for Titus's missing right hand, we learn that this is the missing hand, can't help him, nor can Lavinia, who needs to communicate with signs, use any hands to show her grief. Titus declares that Lavinia might as well cut a hole in her chest by her heart. Marcus scolds Titus for putting these violent ideas into Lavinia's head. Titus condemns Marcus's sorrowful sentimentality. He states that no man but himself should be mad, and Lavinia couldn't hurt herself even if she tried. Titus also wants to know why Marcus reminds them of their loss of hands, because reminders make their grief worse. He and Lavinia will always remember that they are missing hands. Titus then feeds Lavinia. He notices Lavinia doesn't have a drink and tells Marcus that Lavinia says she will drink nothing but tears. He brags about how he will continue to perfect interpreting Lavinia's signs, behavior, and needs. Young Lucius then asks his grandfather, Titus, to stop lamenting and tell a story that will make his aunt Lavinia happy. Young Lucius does not like seeing his grandfather so upset and Titus responds that the boy is made of tears that will make him waste his own life away. Suddenly, Marcus strikes a dish with his knife. Marcus has killed a fly. 
Titus demands Marcus leave because he has killed an innocent life. Marcus is confused because he's only killed a fly. Titus anthropomorphizes the life of a man onto the fly and condones Marcus's actions. Marcus responds that it was only a black fly, black like the moor, Aaron, so he killed it. Upon hearing this, Titus asks Marcus to pardon him for reprimanding him for, in this light, Marcus has done an honorable thing. Titus asks for Marcus's knife so that he can also stab the fly as if it were Aaron. Titus takes the knife and strikes the fly on the dish as if it were Aaron and Tamara. Titus then dismisses Marcus and urges Lavinia and young Lucius to join him in reading old sad stories. All exit. Sometime later, young Lucius enters running with books under his arms and with Lavinia running after him. Young Lucius is clearly trying to run away from Lavinia when he drops the books and Titus and Marcus enter. Young Lucius cries for Titus to help him because Lavinia is following him everywhere and he doesn't understand why, which is scaring him. Marcus and Titus tell the boy not to fear his aunt and remind young Lucius that Lavinia loves him. Lavinia motions something to indicate young Lucius, and Marcus and Titus try to understand what she means. Marcus explains that she wants young Lucius to go with her somewhere and reminds the boy that Lavinia used to read to him. Marcus asks young Lucius if young Lucius can guess what Lavinia is trying to communicate. Young Lucius explains that he was scared because Lavinia's motions reminded him of scary stories, but he remembers that his aunt loves him and asks her forgiveness. Young Lucius says that if Marcus goes with them, young Lucius will go with Lavinia. Marcus agrees he will, as Lavinia starts to examine the books young Lucius dropped. Titus notices this and points it out to Marcus. Titus says that there is some book Lavinia is looking for and tells young Lucius to help her open the books. Titus then says to Lavinia that she can use any book in his library to comfort her in her sorrow until the gods revealed the identity of her rapist. Lavinia begins to lift up her arms over and over. Marcus says he thinks that she is communicating that there was more than one rapist. Lavinia communicates that this is correct. Titus asks young Lucius what book Lavinia was looking through, and young Lucius reveals it is Ovid's Metamorphosis. Titus helps Lavinia turn the pages and asks her what he should read. The pages are turned to the story of Philomel, which Titus remembers tells the story of treason and rape. Marcus notes that Lavinia is studying the pages as if looking for a specific passage. Titus asks Lavinia if she was raped like Philomela was in the woods, and Lavinia nods. Titus then asks Lavinia to give signs to tell them what Roman lord did the deed. He immediately assumes Saturninus. Marcus tells Lavinia and Titus to sit down near him, and they do. Marcus invokes the gods Apollo, Pallas Athena, Jove, and Mercury to inspire him to help find out this treason. He then comes up with a way to use his feet and mouth to write his name with his staff in the sandy dirt without the use of his hands. Marcus then invites Lavinia to do the same. Lavinia takes the staff and writes, using her mouth and feet to guide the staff, quote, Stuprum Chiron Demetrius, unquote, or Rape Chiron Demetrius. Marcus is surprised that it was the sons of Tamara, and Titus quotes Latin as a sign of emotional distress. Marcus urges his brother to calm down and gets Lavinia, Titus, and young Lucius to kneel down with him and swear that they will pursue revenge against Chiron and Demetrius by well-considered means or die. 
Titus warns to be careful, because if Tamara gets wind of any plots against her sons, she will work against them, and she has Saturninus so wrapped around her finger that she can do anything without his notice. Titus says that Marcus is inexperienced in revenge and should follow Titus's lead. Titus asks young Lucius what young Lucius thinks they should do. Young Lucius says that if he were a man, he would take revenge against Tamara too. Titus tells young Lucius that they will send young Lucius, armed, to Chiron and Demetrius with presents from Titus. The young boy says he will go and stab Chiron and Demetrius. Titus says no, he has another plan. Titus tells Lavinia to come with him and asks Marcus to meet them later at Titus's house. Titus and young Lucius will go to court. Lavinia, Titus, and young Lucius exit. Alone on stage, Marcus implores the heavens to relent on the woes that Titus has to endure. Marcus says he will take care of Titus in Titus's current fit of madness and try to prevent Titus from taking revenge. Instead, Marcus hopes that the heavens will carry out the revenge instead. Marcus exits. Aaron, Chiron, and Demetrius enter from one direction, with young Lucius entering from another, with a servant who is carrying a bundle of weapons with verses written on them. Chiron recognizes young Lucius, and Aaron agrees that young Lucius has some sort of mad message from his crazy grandfather for them. Young Lucius greets Aaron, Chiron, and Demetrius with pleasantries, while expressing his true disdain for them in asides, and presents them with the best weapons from Titus's armory. Young Lucius exits with the servant, who helped carry the weapons. Demetrius reads the notes written on the packages, which says, quote, The man of upright life and free from crime does not need the javelins or bows of the moor, unquote. And Chiron says he recognizes the verse as being a quote from Horace. Aaron agrees, and, in an aside, declares that this is no joke. Aaron understands that Titus figured out Chiron and Demetrius's guilt and has sent the weapons wrapped in lines that should make that clear. But Chiron and Demetrius are too stupid to understand the hidden message. Aaron continues that if Tamara were there, she would enjoy this conceit, but she is in labor. Aaron turns back to Chiron and Demetrius and asks how fortunate they were to be brought up to Rome, since everything is coming up goth since they've arrived. Demetrius says that things are even better now that Titus has debased himself and given them gifts. Aaron quips that Titus had reasons to send gifts for what Chiron and Demetrius did to Lavinia. Chiron and Demetrius wish they had more Roman women to satisfy their lust. Demetrius says that they should pray to the gods on Tamara's behalf for an easy labor. Trumpets sound, and Chiron notes that it is probably because Tamara gave birth to Saturninus's son. A nurse enters carrying an infant and asks for Aaron. Aaron asks why she needs him. The nurse responds that they have all been undone and she needs his help. Aaron asks what she carries in her arms, and the nurse proclaims that she wishes she could hide it from the heavens as it has caused shame and disgrace to Tamara and Rome. The nurse reveals, with some racist language, that the baby is black and Tamara has sent it to Aaron, as it is his child, with instructions to kill it. Aaron curses the nurse and questions why the baby deserves death for simply being black. He tells the baby it is beautiful. Demetrius asks what Aaron has done, and Aaron says it is something Demetrius can't undo. Chiron says that Aaron has undone their mother, to which Aaron replies that he has done their mother. Demetrius and Chiron threaten to kill the child, and Aaron says the child shall not die. The nurse interjects that the child must die because it is Tamara's, the mother's, will. 
Aaron says that if the child must die, then he should be the one to kill it. Demetrius moves to kill the child, and Aaron draws his sword in defense and takes the child from the nurse. Aaron insists that the child will die upon his scimitar and swears that giants and even Hercules would not be able to take the child from him. He insults Demetrius and Chiron and asserts that Black is beautiful and powerful. He tells Demetrius and Chiron to remind Tamara that Aaron is old enough to care for the child without needing a guardian himself. Demetrius asks if Aaron will really betray Tamara like this, and Aaron replies she is just his mistress. The baby is part of him, and he will keep it safe in spite of the rest of the world. Demetrius, Chiron, and the nurse comment on how this will doom Tamara, and Chiron blushes to think of the shame it will bring. Aaron notes that the baby is smiling at him instead of blushing, and reminds Chiron and Demetrius that the baby is still their brother, even though he looks like Aaron. The nurse asks what they should tell Tamara. Demetrius asks Aaron what they should do, and says that they will follow Aaron's advice if Aaron can find a way to save the child and save them all. They all sit down to discuss how to keep the nurse and Chiron and Demetrius safe, and Demetrius asks how many other women saw the child. The nurse replies that only herself, Tamara, and the midwife saw the baby. Aaron considers this and suddenly kills the nurse, calling her a pig in the process. Demetrius asks why Aaron did this. Aaron explains that they couldn't have the nurse live and know their guilt. She'd be too likely to gossip. Then, Aaron begins to tell his full plan. He knows of another Moor, who lives nearby, whose Roman wife gave birth to a child yesterday. That child is light-skinned, like the mother. Aaron tells Chiron and Demetrius to make a pact with the father to swap the children and give the mother gold. That child will become Saturninus's heir, while Aaron's son will live as that couple's child. Aaron then tells Chiron and Demetrius that they must bury the nurse and then send the midwife to Aaron. Aaron will kill the midwife too, so no women can gossip about this. Chiron and Demetrius appreciate the care for Tamara with which Aaron has brought about this, and they exit with the nurse's body. Aaron is left alone on stage and says that he will go to the armies of the Goths. There, he will meet with Tamara's allies and introduce his child to the warrior life. He plans to have the baby grow up strong and become a warrior and commander of a camp. Aaron exits. Titus, Marcus, young Lucius, Marcus's son Publius, and other kinsmen of the Andronici named Caius and Sempronius enter. Titus is carrying arrows with letters attached to them. Titus is in a fit of madness and explains to all that they must search the wide sea and dig to the earth's core to try and find justice as she has left the earth. Marcus and Publius discuss how sad it is to see Titus like this and that they must take care of Titus all day and night until they know a cure. Marcus says that Titus's cares are past remedy and they must hope that Lucius can join with the Goths to wage revengeful war against Saturninus and Rome. Titus asks the group if they have met with justice. Publius says no, but the god Pluto will send revenge from hell since justice seems to be otherwise employed. Titus says that he will go down to hell and find revenge himself, and in the meantime, they will solicit help from the gods. He then hands out the arrows, which are addressed to specific gods. They shoot the arrows towards the Roman court and Saturninus and discuss how far they went. Marcus jokes about Tamara's affair with Aaron, suggesting this is now common knowledge in the court. A clown enters with a basket that has two pigeons in it. Titus thinks it is the post and asks if the clown has any letters. 
After some wordplay, the clown reveals that he doesn't have letters and is on his way to see the tribunes to settle a legal dispute between the clown's uncle and one of Saturninus's men. Titus tells the clown to give his pigeons to Saturninus and writes a letter for the clown to deliver to Saturninus. Titus then folds a knife into the letter and instructs the clown to return and tell Titus about Saturninus's response. The clown exits, and Titus, Marcus, Publius, and any others exit in a different direction. Saturninus, Tamara, Chiron, and Demetrius enter. Saturninus carries the arrows that the Andronici shot at him and expresses his frustration and anger over the behavior of Titus. Saturninus reveals that he thinks that Titus is pretending to be mad in order to continue to libel and slander Saturninus without reproach. Tamara tells Saturninus to calm down and think of how old and feeble Titus is. She advises Saturninus to comfort Titus's distress instead of prosecuting him. In an aside, she reveals that she is lying to Saturninus and knows she is the focus of Titus's anger. However, she says, if Aaron is wise and the baby is dead, then she should be fine. The clown enters and Tamara greets him. The clown delivers the letter to Saturninus, who reads the letter and curses Titus. The clown asks if he will be paid, to which Tamara replies that he will be hanged. The clown is taken off stage by guards. Saturninus feels very wronged by Titus and says that Titus is acting as if Titus's sons Martius and Quintus were wrongfully accused of killing Bassianus. Saturninus orders Titus brought to him. Saturninus will not respect Titus's age or honor anymore. A messenger named Aemilius enters with news that the Goth army has gathered under the direction of Lucius and is marching towards Rome. Saturninus balks at this, as he knows Lucius is popular with the common people of Rome, more popular than Saturninus. Tamara senses Saturninus's fear and tells him to buck up and remember that he is the emperor and doesn't need to worry about the common people. She says she will charm Titus. Saturninus says Titus will not entreat on their behalf with Lucius, but Tamara insists that if she charms Titus, then Titus will do what she says. Tamara instructs Emilius to go be an ambassador for Saturninus to Lucius and request a parley to take place at Titus's house. Saturninus tells Emilius that if Lucius tries to take Emilius as a hostage and demand ransom, then Saturninus will pay any amount. Emilius exits. Tamara says she will go to Titus and use all of her powers of persuasion to convince Titus to remove Lucius from leading the Goth armies. She tells Saturninus not to fear and to be happy again. She has it all under control. Saturninus urges her haste, and they exit separately. There is a flourish. Lucius enters with an army of Goths with drums and soldiers. Lucius speaks to the army. He shares that he has received a letter from Rome that tells of Rome's hate for their emperor and their desire for the presence of the Goth army led by Lucius. Lucius praises these great warriors and encourages them to let the Andronici make up for the harm Rome has done to them. One Goth says that, though Andronicus was once a name that sparked fear, the name now is comforting. In fact, Rome's injustices to the Andronicus family has emboldened them so much that the Goths will follow in order to get revenge on Tamara. All the Goths agree. Another Goth enters, leading Aaron with his child in his arms. This second Goth shares that, while their troops were scouting an abandoned monastery, he heard a baby's cry and someone scolding the baby. That someone was Aaron, who also revealed his affair with Tamara and the baby swap plan loud enough for the second Goth to hear. 
the second Goth ambushed Aaron and brought him here for Lucius to use as is seen fit. Lucius remembers the atrocities Aaron put upon the Andronici and asks Aaron why he is acting like the devil. Aaron doesn't respond, so Lucius demands the soldiers hang Aaron and his baby. Aaron demands they spare the baby because the baby is royal. Lucius says that the baby is too like his father to be good. First, hang the baby so the father can watch. Lucius then requests a ladder. A goth brings a ladder, which Aaron is made to climb. Another goth takes the baby. Aaron asks Lucius to spare the baby and take it to the empress. If Lucius does this, Aaron promises Lucius that he will share information that would be advantageous. If Lucius doesn't, Aaron will only curse Lucius. Lucius says that if Aaron's information pleases him, he will spare the baby. Aaron promises everything he shares will be horrible and difficult to hear, but necessary to instill pity. Now, Aaron spills the tea. First up, the baby's mother is the Empress Tamara. Lucius is shocked by Tamara's behavior. Aaron assures Lucius that this is nothing compared to what comes next. Next, Aaron reveals that Tamara's two sons killed Bassianus and then raped and mutilated Lavinia. Aaron admits that, while Demetrius and Chiron got their lecherous spirit from their mother, Demetrius and Chiron were coached by Aaron on how to pull off this act. Aaron also goes into detail about how Demetrius and Chiron got away with murder. Next, Aaron gets personal for Lucius. He reveals that he, Aaron, tricked Titus into chopping off a hand and enjoyed the ploy so much that he laughed so much he cried. Aaron reveals that, when he told Tamara, she loved it so much that she gave him 20 kisses. The Goths and Lucius are shocked by what they are hearing. When Lucius asks Aaron if he is sorry for these horrendous acts, Aaron says he is sorry he didn't do it a thousand more times. For all of this information, Lucius spares the devil Aaron from being hanged because that would be too sweet a death for him. Aaron climbs down off the ladder. In response to being called a devil, Aaron curses Lucius to hell. Lucius orders that Aaron be silenced. Aaron is gagged. Emilius enters. A goth announces that there is a messenger from Rome who wishes to be admitted to his presence. Lucius allows him near. Lucius greets Emilius and asks for the contents of the message. Emilius delivers a message from Saturninus asking Lucius, because they are preparing an army, to instead come have a conversation at Titus's home and to name any hostages in Rome that he, Lucius, desires to have delivered to them. Lucius tells Emilius that if the emperor promises Marcus and Titus, they will come. There's a flourish and all exit. Tamara and her two sons, Demetrius and Chiron, all in disguises, enter. Tamara tells Demetrius and Chiron that, in this disguise, she will go to Titus and say that she is revenge personified, who has been sent up from hell to help Titus right his wrongs. Tamara instructs Demetrius and Chiron to knock at Titus's study, where he is said to be plotting his own revenge, and tell Titus revenge has come to help him with his enemies. Demetrius and Chiron knock on the door and Titus opens his study door. Titus asks who interrupts his thoughts. Tamara, as revenge, tells Titus that she has come to talk with him. Titus says no. Tamara, as revenge, tells Titus that if he knew who she was, he would talk to her. Titus claims that he knows who she is. She is Tamara, coming for his other hand. Tamara, as revenge, says no. She is revenge. In fact, Tamara is revenge's enemy, 
and Titus is Revenge's friend. She tells Titus that she has come to help him get revenge on his foes, including Tamara. Titus demands revenge do some service before he comes to her. In order to give Titus assurance, she must stab or tear one of his enemies, and then he joins her in her quest to get revenge all around the world. To this, Tamara as revenge introduces her two sons as her servants, rape and murder, for they take revenge on such kind of men. Titus notes how his old eyes made him mistake these three for Tamara and her sons, but since they're not, he agrees to join revenge and exits. Tamara is not surprised he agreed to this deception because it fits his alleged madness. Tamara plots with Demetrius and Chiron that whatever she invents to trick Titus, Demetrius and Chiron must uphold when they speak with Titus. Since Titus believes her disguise, she's decided she'll make Titus send for his son Lucius, and, while she distracts Titus with a banquet, she'll come up with some plan to sick the Goths on him, or, at the very least, turn the Goths against Titus. Tamara is ready to work on this plan. Titus enters and shares that he has been sad all this time because of revenge. Titus welcomes Fury to his home and welcomes rape and murder as well. Titus notes again how much rape and murder look like Tamara's sons. Titus adds that the team would be totally prepared for revenge if they had a more. Titus asks if Hell couldn't afford them such a devil on the team. Again, yikes, Shakespeare. Titus notes that the Empress always has a more with her and... If Revenge plans to represent the queen, it'd be convenient if she had one. In spite of this absence of amour, they're all welcome as they are, and Titus asks what they should do. Tamara, as Revenge, asks Titus what he wants to do with them. Demetrius, disguised as murder, tells Titus to show him a murderer and he'll deal with him. Chiron, disguised as rape, tells Titus to show him a rapist and he'll deal with him. Titus encourages each of them to murder any murderer and rapist they come across. Titus then tells Revenge to go with them and that in the Emperor's court there's a queen who looks like Revenge and a moor. Titus requests Revenge violently kill both of them, for they have done violence to Titus and his family. Tamara as Revenge thanks Titus for the instructions. Tamara as Revenge also has a request for Titus. She asks Titus to send his son Lucius who leads an army of Goths to Rome, to a banquet at his, Titus's, house. When they come, she will bring the empress, her sons, the emperor, and any other of Titus's enemies. At this banquet, Titus can get his revenge. Before Titus can agree to the plan, he calls out to his brother Marcus. Marcus enters. Titus requests Marcus go fetch Lucius and bid him to do a few things. Come to Titus and bring with him some of the foremost principles of the Goths, tell his army to set up camp where they are, and lastly, join the emperor and empress for a feast. Marcus exits to deliver the message. Tamara, as revenge, announces she will go take care of her business and take her ministers with her. Titus requests rape and murder stay with him, or else he'll call Marcus back to call off the plan. If that happens, he'll only engage in a revenge plot with Lucius. Tamara asks her sons if they will agree to stay while she goes to the Emperor Saturninus to relay her plan. Demetrius agrees. Titus, in an aside, shares that he knows Tamara, Demetrius, and Chiron are in disguise, and he shares that he's not actually mad, but will instead trick them during their plan. Tamara as revenge exits, 
announcing she is leaving to lay a plot to betray Titus's enemies. Chiron as Rape asks Titus what they can do for him. Titus assures them that he has enough work for the two of them. Titus then calls over Publius, Caius, and Valentine. Publius, Caius, and Valentine enter. Publius asks Titus what he requests. Titus asks Publius if he knows Demetrius and Chiron. Publius says he knows that they are the Empress's sons and names them. Titus corrects Publius. They are rape and murder, so Publius must tie them up. Titus orders Caius and Valentine grab Demetrius' murder and Chiron as rape and bind and gag them. This is the moment Titus has been waiting for. Titus exits. Chiron objects to this punishment for him and Demetrius because they are the Empress's sons. Publius orders Caius and Valentine to bind and gag Demetrius and Chiron, so Caius and Valentine bind and gag the brothers. Titus with a knife and Lavinia with a basin enter. Titus tells Lavinia to look at Demetrius and Chiron. Her foes are bound. Titus orders his henchmen to quiet Demetrius and Chiron. Demetrius and Chiron are not allowed to speak. Instead, they must listen to what Titus has to say to them. Titus points to Lavinia and reprimands the brothers for raping her and killing her husband. Because they killed Bassianus, Lavinia's own brothers were framed and killed for the murder. In addition, Titus's hand has been cut off, and Lavinia's hands were cut off and her tongue was cut out. Titus asks Demetrius and Chiron what they would say if he let them speak. Because they are gagged, Titus notes that the two brothers cannot beg for grace. Instead, Titus shares that he will cut their throats and Lavinia, between her stubs, holds the basin that will collect their blood. Titus also shares that he knows Tamara is pretending to be revenge and thinks he's mad, which he isn't. So, Titus's revenge plan is to grind both Demetrius and Chiron up and make meat pies of their bodies for his feast with Tamara, and that he will serve up Demetrius and Chiron meat pies to their unsuspecting mother. This is the punishment they will all receive for what they have done to Lavinia. Now that he shared his revenge, Titus cuts Demetrius and Chiron's throats. Titus orders the bodies be collected so that he can cook them up. All exit with the bodies. Lucius, Marcus, the Goths, and Aaron as a prisoner, with one Goth carrying Aaron's baby, enter. An Arden Shakespeare footnote places the scene as outside of Titus's home, and then it moves inside. Lucius says that he is ready. Goth 1 says that they're following Lucius and Marcus's leads. Lucius instructs Marcus to take Aaron inside, don't feed him, and restrain him until he is brought in to the Empress to give a testimony for her actions. Lucius hopes the ambush on the feast will be strong, for he fears the Emperor is up to something bad. A guard escorts Aaron offstage. Trumpets blare. Lucius announces that trumpets indicate the Emperor's coming. The Emperor Saturninus and Empress Tamara enter with tribunes and others, including Aemilius the Messenger. Saturninus and Lucius insult each other, and Marcus tells both of them to stop throwing insults and calmly debate the issues at hand. Marcus informs everyone that Titus's feast is ready and everyone should take their seats. Saturninus agrees. Trumpets sound and a table is brought in. Everyone sits. Titus enters, like a cook, placing the dishes. Lavinia enters with a veil over her face and with young Lucius. Titus welcomes Saturninus, Tamara, the warrior Goths, Lucius, and everyone else. Titus hopes that, although the food is insufficient, 
He hopes everyone will eat up. Saturninus asks Titus why he is dressed like that. Titus responds that he is dressed like this in order to entertain the emperor and empress. Titus continues by asking Saturninus if Virginius, note that's a Canterbury Tales character, was right to kill his daughter for her being raped. Saturninus agrees that Virginius was right because the girl should not have survived her shame and then remind her father of its sorrows. Titus agrees with Saturninus that he has a good point. Then Titus unveils Lavinia and kills her. Saturninus is shocked and asks why Titus did something so unnatural and unkind. Titus explains that he has killed her because he is like Virginius. Saturninus asks if Lavinia has been raped and who is the rapist. Titus urges everyone to eat. Tamara asks why Titus has killed his only daughter. Titus corrects Tamara. It was Chiron and Demetrius who raped her, cut out her tongue, and did her wrong. Saturninus demands Demetrius and Chiron be brought in. Titus reveals that Demetrius and Chiron are here. They are in the meat pie that Tamara has eaten. Titus then stabs Tamara. Saturninus, outraged, kills Titus. Lucius, avenging his father's death, kills Saturninus. During this uproar, the Goths protect the Andronici, who retreat aloft. Marcus, who is also aloft on stage, asks the distressed crowd if he can speak so that he can teach broken Rome how to fix itself and go from scattered pieces to one whole body again. A Roman lord counters that Rome should just execute itself. The Roman lord then says that if people don't want to take this advice of collective suicide, metaphorically killing Rome, they should listen to Marcus. This same Roman lord also suspects that, much like the Trojan horse, the Goths have infiltrated Rome and asks to hear the tale. Being given permission to speak, Marcus admits that he might be too emotionally overcome to speak at the moment and asks Lucius to speak instead. Lucius tells the tale of what has happened with the Andronici and the emperor and empress. Demetrius and Chiron murdered Lucius's brother, Bassianus. Demetrius and Chiron also raped and mutilated Lucius's sister, Lavinia. Lucius's two brothers were framed and executed for Demetrius and Chiron's crimes. Titus's sorrows were taken advantage of, and he lost his hand, and Lucius was banished from Rome and sent searching for relief from Rome's enemies, the Goths, who embraced Lucius. Lucius shares that he still has Rome in his blood, even though he has joined the enemy. Lucius reminds everyone that he has fought for Rome and, even though he doesn't like to boast, he has the battle scars to prove it. Lucius then apologizes for speaking too highly of himself, for he doesn't have anyone to speak his praises. Marcus announces it is his turn to speak. Marcus points everyone's attention to Aaron's baby and shares that the baby is the child of Tamara and Aaron the Moor, who plotted these misfortunes. Marcus tells them that Aaron is still alive and in Titus's house and is a witness to these events. Now, Marcus claims, the tribunes can judge whether or not Titus had good cause to get revenge for these wrongs. Marcus asks whether the Andronici did the right thing, and, if so, the rest of the family will kill themselves and bring an end to the Andronicus line. Aemilius tells Marcus to bring the emperor of Rome over, for Aemilius has heard the common people want Lucius to be the emperor. The Romans are led by Marcus to hail Lucius, Rome's royal emperor. Marcus then orders some attendants to go into Titus's house to retrieve Aaron and kill him for his wicked life. There is a long flourish until the Andronici come down. All Romans hail Lucius. 
Lucius thanks the Romans and promises to govern Rome in a way that heals the state and wipes away the misfortune. Lucius also asks the Romans to stand by and observe his efforts because he has a big task at hand. Lucius then tells his uncle Marcus to come near and cry tears as a funeral rite on Titus. Lucius kisses Titus. Marcus kisses Titus. Both say kind words to and about Titus as they mourn his death. Lucius calls over his sons to also mourn for the grandfather that young Lucius shares so many precious memories with. Lucius tells young Lucius that young Lucius shall remember the tales Titus told him. Young Lucius kisses Titus and has to turn away because he's crying so much. Aaron enters with the guard. A Roman tells the Andronici to give a sentence for Aaron, who is the cause of all of their woes. Lucius punishes Aaron to be buried up to his chest in the ground and left to starve. If anyone tries to help Aaron, that person shall also be killed. Lucius then orders some people to stay to make sure Aaron gets buried. Lucius then orders someone to bury Saturninus in his father's grave. He also gives an order that Titus and Lavinia shall be buried in their family monument. As for Tamara, Lucius says that she shall get no funeral rites nor mourning. Instead, throw her to the beasts and birds to be eaten because her life was too beastly and, now that she's dead, she deserves the pity of birds. All exit with the dead bodies. And that's Titus Andronicus. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to this week's guest editor, Nat Yance. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, Follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From The Winter's Tale Act 5, Scene 3, Spoken by Paulina You perceive she stirs. Start not. Her actions shall be holy as you hear my spell as lawful. Do not shun her until you see her die again, for then you kill her double.